Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. In the 22nd episode, I spoke with Mackie Saturday, who is a world-renowned graphic designer who created visual identities for some of the most famous brands of our time, such as Instagram, Oculus, and recently also Unsplash. He's currently running a brand agency based in New York City. In this podcast, we talked about his early beginnings and how Mackie learned to sell his services. We also discussed how we can avoid taste-based discussions with our clients. We also talked about uh, good timing, right? So when a brand redesign is a good idea and when it is not. And finally, we also talked about why the businesses even invest in logos and how we can use this information to then further sell our services. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. If you want to learn more about business, um, you can visit my website beyondusers.com and there you can take a five-day email course, which I put together. It's called Mini MBA for Designers. And in these emails, I present five business concepts that are relevant for designers and that I've also used in my design process. So that's available on beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Mackie Saturday. So, Mackie, first of all, thanks a lot for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, so, first question, just to kind of get to know you better, is how did you get into design and then into brand design? Sure. I mean, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I, I hope that I can actually offer some some quality information to people today. My, my history is a little bit non-standard because I went to, to university for art, not for design. Um, and so I have a, a more traditional art background, actually, which I then later transitioned into design only through being inspired by some friends that also happened to be in the, the design industry. And when I had found that I could effectively marry my love uh, for art and for, for aesthetics with a, a business sense and a strategic um, kind of background that I could, that I could put those things together to, to make a business and to make a living. That was a really exciting opportunity for me. So I actually graduated with that, that fine art degree and through some connections, started working within the action sports industries, doing some freelance work for people and uh, just transitioned up from there. It's kind of scaling the business into a, a more specific identity focused design practice. It's funny you mentioned um, art and design because this is exactly kind of the discussion I had with Mark um, in the fourth episode actually. And yeah. even the title of the whole episode is design is not art <laughs> yeah. and it was it was exactly talking about this but can you like maybe uh in your own words say what was the biggest difference what what made you then go from studying in art to doing a design because i feel like it's still not clear to everybody what the difference is yeah and and i think even for artists and designers it's not always a hundred percent clear you could set hard and fast rules uh, but i don't think that anybody would would universally agree with those. I will say a pretty clear difference is that design is usually problem solving, whereas you have a 
challenge that needs resolution and you're going to use visuals to solve said problem, whether that's a communication problem or an advertising problem, things like that, that's where design comes into play. So you, you clearly have a client and that client has defined a problem and you're trying to solve that problem with visuals. And that's really where design lives. And these are general statements. Of course, these are not universal statements. Whereas art, oftentimes there's not necessarily a a set in client unless you have a commission, but art is much more subjective and you're able to express things. And it's an idea of communicating something broadly to the world, again, through visuals that you determine or through a type of experience, but you're setting that forth rather than having a pre-established problem that you're trying to solve for, which is really the, the place for design. I'm not sure if that mm. makes sense, but um, that's yeah, I I mean, you also said that kind of venturing into design gave you this platform to also add the business layer to your work. So I'm just curious, like, how did you yourself then start acquiring this business knowledge? Mm-hmm. You were talking about the strategic stuff and building a venture. How did you go about getting this knowledge, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. That's probably one of the most challenging parts of the work that I've done was figuring out how to make it into an actual business because I did not have any formal training in that, uh, no background. And I'm fortunate enough that we live in an era where you can look a lot of these things up and look to others who have done it and find resources that help you to determine what it is that you need to, to do. Not to say that I didn't make many mistakes along the way and still continue to make business mistakes, but it's, it's really been looking to peers, looking to people in other industries that run successful businesses and trying to pull out the things that work for them and apply those to a design practice. So when I very first started, I was, you know, I was just reading, reading blogs and talking to friends who owned businesses and asking them really basic questions about how to run a business and what are the things that I need to do. And then I would kind of make up the rest along the way. And the part that I could control, the part that I understood was at least the design, the art side of it. And I held myself to a very high standard to assure that everything I put out, I could be very proud of and confident in standing behind. And then I worked to figure out the business side uh, along that. And so the business side was definitely lacking in the beginning. Mm. Um, And I've picked up those skills along the way. Whereas hopefully, I mean, hopefully the art side has also evolved and gotten much better, but I, I absolutely had more of a foundation and understanding of that. So I bring high level aesthetics with uh, a desire to solve problems well, and a little bit of business acumen to the table and slowly grew it from there. Mm, which kind of makes sense because you're still in the design business. So yeah. being a great designer is a prerequisite. And absolutely. End. It's uh, that's the thing that should be the baseline. It's not the, the end goal you should of course always deliver high quality visuals that's a a given within this industry exactly so speaking of emulating uh, your peers and talking to your peers for advice is there any particular uh, story or maybe challenge that you faced on your path that you could maybe share with with listeners just to kind of paint the picture of what were the business challenges that you were faced with and then how you solved it? Hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of these and I'm trying to think of what would be a, a helpful one. Um, 
I'll, I'll tell a story that probably most people would not expect me to, to talk about, nor would they care about the company. But I think it offers some, some interesting outlook on how to go from zero to a business pretty quickly. Um, and this was one of my, my early on projects where I was hired to redesign the website for a used car dealership. Not a very exciting project, not a very <laughs> uh, world-renowned project or anything, but it was early on. And in that relationship that I established with that client, it was it was pretty quickly obvious that they needed a lot more work, but I had no idea how you like how you establish a type of working relationship with someone. So in, in this time we, we realized, okay, the website was, was a minimal part of the, the, the issue. And that in fact, they were going to be expanding. They were going to be opening new locations. They're going to be doing all of these things. And I had no idea how to, to really handle that. So instead of just one only doing the website, like that was my assignment, I decided to, take a step back and to look at the, the company holistically and try to position myself as, as an expert, even though I wasn't necessarily at that point in time uh, an expert by any means, to help them with all of their visual communication. And what we really did that, that worked well that I then learned and translated into a lot of other business down the line um, was not fake it till you make it. A lot of people say that it's not that, but be prepared to learn as you go and be willing and excited to look for opportunities and then find the resources that you need to be able to do those other things. Because in fact, I was a much better designer at all at everything else than, than the web, but the website was what got me in the door. And by building a relationship of trust with the client, I was able to then have a much greater influence where I, I got to redo their identity. I got to design an entire new location, do all the signage program, the print collateral, the totality of their communication, which then provided a huge platform for me to start growing a business from. Um, so the challenge was, I would say not being qualified nor prepared for the scale of project that I was getting into without realizing it. Uh, but the lesson to be learned was when the opportunity presents itself, be prepared to jump and be ready to do the extra late work and necessary challenging work that maybe you're uncomfortable with for the sake of the better long-term outcome. Mm. And what you described almost sounds like a very typical challenge that designers have especially early in their careers or in companies that are not that design mature. It's like you're asked to do just one thing, but you yeah. kind of sense that you can do so much more. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of the really hard part of this design, like a journey of a designer is how do you start communicating with your um, boss or client in a way that you explain that you can do so much more. So yeah. I'm curious, like, how did you do this step, which is so important? Like, what, what did you do exactly or specifically, if you can share, that made them realize that you can do so much more than just a website? Yeah, it's a good question. And you're absolutely right. And that happens, I would say, pretty universally at startups, at people that get hired into corporations. Um, I, I hear about this all the time. You're right. What I did there was, first, you have to meet their need. The, the biggest mistake that I've 
seen people make is to come in to realize immediately that a lot more needs done than what you're being asked to do. And then you insist that you need to do everything or you're doing nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. That's off putting and it makes you seem, um, I don't know, a bit stuck up, but in this case I came in and and we solved the, like the project or the problem at hand first and foremost. So you have to deliver on the ask so that they know that they can trust you and that they can see, okay, Yes, you absolutely, you delivered, you not only delivered, you maybe went beyond even what we expected. Um, and you have really given us more than what we would have asked for. We're very happy with this first part of the work. You then can use that as a platform to say, well, now look at the quality here. And if you look around at the, the totality of your communication visually, other things are not up to this caliber. They're not near as good. I'm sure you can see that. And they will, they're, they're not going to be completely blind to it. And it offers them a chance to, to say, yeah, well, you know, we're a better company. We're stepping up. We, we can believe and invest in design. We've done it here. So let's start to do that everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So you have to change their mentality a little bit, but not in a pushy way of getting them to be excited and believe in who they could be visually and how they could communicate and then find a gentle way to start navigating all of that work towards that high quality outcome that you know you want to be able to bring to the table. I think like the key word there was not being pushy. Right. Um, you know, like how do you, I mean, obviously a, a first you need to deliver on what they asked for yes. and then B in a non pushy way, you have to open this door. So how do you do that? Like, do you, did you like put some nuggets into your final presentation of I mean, not final presentation. Like, did you put some nuggets in your work when designing website that kind of alluded to, hey, these are other things we have to work on? Or was this like completely separate part of a conversation? It was a separate conversation. I try not to muddy the water or not to feel like I'm leading them with the the work at hand. But I also was very um, diligent in assuring that we continue that conversation to not just walk away. And also it's good in conversation to, to at least bring things up. So it's less of, I stuck things into a presentation or I hid things in somewhere for people to find it. And more of you have an open conversation with the people on the client side of your project saying, yeah, well, you know, these other brands that you admire or these peers or these, uh, these long established companies, this is what they've done. These are the things that they care about. You want to be like that, don't you? Um, and generally that, that starts to open up those doors, especially if you give them tangible examples that they can understand and look to and say, oh yeah, we want to be like that. And I see that they have done these other things. Mm. One thing that I feel is really tricky with identity work is showing your value, showing the value of the work. Like, you know, business people care about metrics. They care about results. They want to see the bottom line work. And when you sell an identity or just logo, then that kind of sometimes feels so far away from the numbers that they don't see the reason to invest. So as someone who is like world-class in this process, I want to hear from you, like how do you try to sell identity work, brand work, I mean, is this kind of building this bridge between business and design or is there something else in play? There's, there's both uh, things at play. There is selling the business and design part. There's also playing into uh, people's passion and people's excitement about 
about their company. It's very difficult to sell in identity work to somebody who doesn't care about the company they're working at. I'll tell you that. So if you have a, a CMO or a CEO at a company who's, who's thinking about leaving that company or is just not personally invested in that brand, it's going to be very difficult to ever convince them on the value of identity work. But when you have somebody who's, who's passionate about where they work, who really believes in, in the product or the company as a whole, whether that's a founding CEO, then that's usually very easy or somebody who, who has a strong track record of making successful companies in the past, those people usually understand or are able to come to an understanding of the necessity to present themselves very well because they, they care about how they look personally. They know the necessity to present themselves well as a professional in the business world and in life in general. And when you can offer them that opportunity for the business to allow itself to be presented at its highest capacity through the identity work that usually speaks pretty well to, to people that are in those type of positions. The other point to bring up, or when you start to think about metrics, you look at what are recognized as valuable brands and the, the brands that have the greatest value are actually the brands that have had logos for the longest um, it's not a universal truth, but it's very true that you're never going to find a uh, most valuable brand with a logo that's only three years old. They need something that has the ability to endure, that has the ability to take on all of the shifts and change in business that the company will inevitably go through and that can in time take on the extensive amount of equity that they will build with that brand for the consumer. So giving them a tool that's able to hold all of that is, is your task. And that's a, a valuable thing that you can approach them with. Mm. But I guess the process, when you get into the process of designing a brand for a certain company, it, I mean, this whole process can be quite muddy because <laughs> they, I, I guess, I mean, you know much more about this. I guess they have certain expectations and it's very emotional, right? It's not that objective as, I don't know, improving a process. True. So what is the thing that you use in the process to kind of align the client and your team? Mm -hmm. There's a deep question. Um, you're right. It is never as objective as one would hope it to be. And that's okay. We're not, uh, we're not universally objective beings. People are emotional. People have real experiences and real relationships and we, we react to things because we're human. And instead of trying to completely negate that, it's better to, to somewhat embrace it and then find a, a nice path through it collectively. What I try to do is early on in the conversations that we're having, I try to set expectations. As long as expectations are understood and grasped equally across a process, it makes it so much simpler to get to the end compared to maybe making people feel very happy in the beginning and excited, but not being clear about um, what the expectations are and then getting to the end and having you know, somebody feel let down. So early on, even when I'm initially asking questions about a logo, I will lead into those questions with statements that I believe to be true about the potential of an identity. So we talk about the way in which we judge a logo even while I'm asking the initial questions about what the, the logo itself should be. So you start to seed in those uh, bits of knowledge and those bits of wisdom to 
the people on the client side of a project that then allows them to feel intelligent when they're answering and when they're making a decision in the end, and you're simultaneously helping to set expectations. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more like in detail, like how do you exactly do that? Like in terms of the setting the expectations? Sure. I mean, here's a, a really easy example. There's a lot of bigger examples, but this is a, a simple one that works in a, in a pretty good way. When you, when you're talking to, to a client and we're, we're speaking specifically about a logo here and we say, you know, ask it, you ask a lot of questions. You ask about a brand personality, you ask about what, how you want to communicate, where does the logo need to show up? You ask all of these questions that can have very long answers that can um, be quite hypothetical or where people can dream. But I always like to ask a question that's very poignant and that drives to the core and also helps to set these expectations. And the way I usually frame this up is I say, you know, if you think about a good logo, you know, the, some of the best logos in the world, they're very simple. And most of them say very little, if nothing, about the brand or the product or the organization. You could use the Nike swoosh as an example. It's simply a stylized check mark. It's, mm. not, a sh it's not a shoe. It's not a runner. Um, but it has an idea or a personality trait that might be appropriate. Like it's dynamic or it implies movement. Um, so if we were to look at whatever this company is, company X is logo. And we knew that we could only put one thing into that identity one personality trait, one characteristic, one idea, just one, you know, what should that be? And that forces people to, to think quite differently about this whole process instead of like, oh, you're going to tell the story. You're going to explain how we're a better business. You're going to do all of this. <laughs> it makes them be like, oh, well, what's the one most important thing about us? We need to, that needs to be our flag. We need to raise that first and foremost, because that's really what this project is. Um, and it gets them thinking like that. So that's a very tangible way to help manage those expectations of what can go into a logo while you're also getting information from them about what's the most important thing for that company. Yeah, that's really tricky. Just now me thinking like if I would have to choose one word that's especially like if you are really established big company with many employees, I think that gets exactly. really hard. <laughs> It does. All right. People just want to go um, like, you know, broad and say, 50, 100 things and expect yeah. that the logo is going to do all that stuff. And I say, no, no, no. We just want to pick one that's appropriate, one that's right, and one that's able to be the vessel that then holds all of these other things that you're going to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> and is there like a list of all the adjectives? And that people give? <laughs> I mean, like, how do you even choose? Like, where do you even start? Like, is there like a, I don't know. Like, uh, I don't know, I expect maybe like a big poster with 200 words and then you start crossing things out or... No, no, yeah. we try not to, not to make it an overwhelming thing because okay. by default, that's where people already are. And the idea here, at least within brand work, within identity work is to simplify, is to clarify. It's, it's you know, we're making kind of like a visual word. It's like, mm. you know, it's a visual signature. It's your name. Um, in some cultures, it's true that a name does have a bit of meaning implied to it in many cultures names have no meaning it's just chosen by a parent and then over time that name takes on everything that is known about you and becomes an identifier for you and we're looking for the same thing in a logo uh, mm. a visual that's 
you know, that's appropriate to who you are. So there's, a, it's like picking a name a little bit later in life, but it's never going to tell your whole story. And it absolutely can't tell the story of everything that you're going to go on and become, but it should be able to be a good vessel to hold all of that so that people have a recognition, you know, a good recognizable visual to tie back to the experiences they have with you. Mm. So when using this process that you just described, how many times did it happen that actually then at the end client didn't like it? Like he didn't like the result. It's, it's, it's rarely like a, uh, absolutely don't like it or, or absolutely love it type of response. It's usually that we find, I, I always present options, but it's generally that because I'm very diligent upfront in understanding the needs, we're able to look at options in the end and clearly identify which ones are hitting the personality the best. And then also identify if there is a flaw in those, what that is so that we can make a modification to get to an appropriate solution. Um, it really does help it to not just become about, you know, pick what you like or what you don't like. I'm also really, really, um, I don't know, I guess hard on myself and hard on my team in terms of making sure that we are delivering things that we're very, very proud of. It's not about meeting a number. It's not about uh, just making the client feel like they've seen enough options. It's about at the end of the day, anything that I put in front of them, I need to be okay and excited about the fact that they may choose that and it could be their logo tomorrow that they could cover their eyes and throw a dart at the wall and whichever logo they hit is the one that they get and we're we're proud of that um so that standard of of quality going into every everything that is shown also you know really does help it to from falling off the rail completely mm. is there a way for a client or you to test a logo before you make it public? <laughs> there is not a way to test a logo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, unfortunately. Uh, no, I mean, it's just, I like people ask this question, they want to test it. Um, uh, like, <laughs> like, it's basically, here's the thing. People want to test logos, but logos only work through familiarity. You know, a logo is not good in the beginning. Let's use the Nike logo again as an example, just to keep things consistent. If you read Shoe Dog, which is, you know, Phil Knight's um, biography or autobiography, yeah. he talks about that logo and seeing it for the first time and saying, like, I don't love it, but maybe it'll grow on me. <laughs> mm. And that's the thing. So you can't test a, a logo because it only works through that familiarity. So, of course, if it's different, it's going to not be necessarily liked right off the bat and it's also impossible for people to to even see the potential of a logo without experiencing it everywhere in which it's going to live so we do our best to demonstrate that in the presentations where we show logos in an extreme array of of context just so you can get a look and feel for how it can become all of these things but ultimately there's really not a, a good way to test it because the test will always be they prefer the current one because they're familiar with it. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. But now to go back to the client relationship stuff, what I'm really curious to hear is why do clients or companies even decide to, I mean, what are the usual reasons? What do they expect the logo will do for them? So, um, you know, like, do they expect this is going to improve the revenue? Do they expect this? It's going to be better. I mean, it's going to be easier for them to kind of 
own the trademark? What are the usual? Yeah, I'm guessing it's mostly business motives. So like, what are those levers or these reasons they decide to even do the rebranding? It's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say the number, there's, there's two big, big reasons why people do rebrandings. Uh, one is they have a trademark issue. So like you're saying, perhaps they started um, as a small company and they you know, made a logo pretty quickly and um, they, they started to become successful and then they were sent a legal document informing them that they can't use said trademark. Um, and, or, or, and not just that, maybe it's not that they get the answer that they can't use it, but maybe it's that it's um, just not proprietary in any kind of way. Like they did something so generic that there's no way that they can own it. Also, those two things, I would say those are both legal challenges, um, but they both present the necessity to, to change. The other side of things, the other time they see people changing often is when there is uh, some type of, of big business flag to wave, whether that's a repositioning of the company or the product, whether that's an acquisition, whether that is um, an addition of serious features, those kind of things often also create these projects um, and have people say, Hey, it's time. We need to, we need to make a statement. We're different for this reason. And we want to tie something to that. And so re-identifying ourselves, you know, is, is the appropriate way to do that. And then the third, probably most common one is just a name change. Companies change names pretty often more than people would imagine. And then there's a necessity to, to obviously re redo the identification because they have a new name. Mm. I mean, that's interesting to me in a sense that I see some startups that have very, let's call it blend brand. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's just very, I don't know, just generic. Yep. And I almost feel like if they would change their brand, this might not just solve the trademark issues uh, and the positioning issues, but it actually could improve their sales conversions because they might talk closer to their customers. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious to hear from your side, is this, is this hypothesis of mine even realistic um, or is it like completely not? <laughs> your hypothesis is realistic and the way that you framed it up is a realistic expectation because you're talking about positioning the brand visually in a, a manner in which instills a more more trust or more expertise or more value ultimately in that startup's brand. So by investing in quality design, they're positioning themselves in, in a way that makes their product or their company seem more valuable and thus could help drive their success. Now, when people say it's an established company and they say, oh, we just need more sales, let's change our logo, that's not going to work. Um, then you're talking about much, much bigger issues. They're not offering a new product. They're not changing the core parts of the business, which is where the value really comes from. Um, so that's, that's unrealistic. But if the issue is just that, yeah, maybe you do have a great product and maybe you are just not communicating it well, or you're not positioning your company correctly, then doing an exercise to, to refresh your identity, to bring it up to that appropriate level, absolutely has that potential to position you and to gain you those additional customers. Mm. Okay, there are two more situations that I would like to cover with you in terms of, um, let, let's say I am uh, an in-house product designer, 
working for a startup. It's not really big, but it's also not small. Like it's, you know, it's growing and it has this brand that maybe needs a revamp. Mm-hmm. But how would you go? Okay, so let's say you are actually this designer in this company, and okay. you really want to change the brand because you feel like okay, this is it's just not it's not working. Uh, how would you go about convincing your boss to actually give you the time or budget to do it? Time and budget. You're going to need both. Um, <laughs> okay. Or maybe just time. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, it, there's a variety of ways to answer this. Um, the most common one would be what's your, to first establish what's your relationship with your boss and with the CEO, with all the decision makers on this process and finding out what their level of trust in you is no matter what you have to be sensitive to what's already there because they have chosen it for a reason and they're aware of it unless they've explicitly come to you and said that it sucks and it needs changed you're going to have to find a nice way to introduce them to the idea that perhaps it's not as good as it could be then from there only after you have a little bit of buy-in into understanding that the current set of visual identification is not, like I said, as good as it could be, can you then start to present options as to how it could become what it should be um, and how it could become great? Then you start to formulate that into a potential project path with partners or internal teams or whatever that might be. And then you start looking at what the implications of of executing that are and present it to them. And then that's when you'll deal with these issues of justifying it from a value perspective because they're going to need to allot resources to do so. But hopefully at that point, they've already expressed interest, seen the potential value, gotten excited about what could be, like where they could go, what could come from this. And then they're a little bit more likely to invest those resources. Mm. So if I understand correctly, you try to create a small nugget of the idea so that they can actually start um imagining how this could look like and then in second step you try to tie it into one of the reasons that we just discussed right so maybe if it's in a certain stage it could also affect the revenue if not maybe there's something on the trademark that you could tie to or maybe it's just about a new product that you could try to then tie it to a new brand does that make sense that does make sense. Yep. You, you need to plant the seed. You need to help to educate those who have the ability to make the decision to do this on why it needs to be done. And they need to feel confident about where it could go. And then you need to figure out a good reason to do it because it's never a good reason to change your logo just because. Yeah. That's, that's wrong. You should not do that. And even if you come in and you just don't like it, you need to take a step back and, and ask yourself a question of, is it working? And check to make sure does the logo actually perform its core functionality as an identifier and if it does then you need to check yourself a little bit and get out of your get out of your head and um, reduce your ego uh, quite a bit to understand what the real necessity for doing this or not doing this project is i would say like one of the one of the biggest problems i see is when a new cmo steps into a company and just because they got a job they decide they want to change the logo so that they can put their stamp on that company that's a really bad reason to do an identity design project mm, and what do you do with these kind of requests <laughs> well it's, it's very hard sometimes you turn them down sometimes you tell them that they have great equity in the brand and there's not a reason to change um, and you push back it's i find it best to just not be involved with 
clients or situations that you can't believe in from the beginning because it's only going to cause you more of a headache in the end. Yeah, makes sense. So speaking about this, let's call it even like a selling perspective of the brand identity, what really baffles me a lot in terms of the logos and their prices is that, you know, I can go on a Fiverr and just get a logo for 50 bucks. And on the other side, you have brand agencies selling, offering their work for five or even six figures. Mm-hmm. So what makes some, like, like what makes one logo worth so much than the other? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what makes one logo work or not work is a variety of things. The reason that you go hire a larger scale or more expert company versus someone off Fiverr is that hopefully they are going to be quite seasoned in identity design and they have made work that has the potential or studied deeply work that has the potential to endure for you. Because when you're investing in a logo, it truly is like a depreciable asset where over time it becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because you get to keep using it over and over and over again. And in fact, it actually gains value and then starts to become uh, an asset for the company that has great value where you could sell it on its own or people license it from you. Um, for example, you know, the Xerox trademark is licensed by other companies throughout the world because that name has so much value. So hopefully you're looking for a company that can deliver that type of a result to you that gives you that runway with your, you know, with, with your identity itself. That's what you're really trying to, to set up. You may, if you have a really great eye and you get really, really lucky, get an okay design off something like fiber. I can't say that there's not a, a good budding designer out there who might be able to hit it. It's true, but it's a very, very risky business to do things like that. It's like, you know, closing your eyes and reaching into a bucket and pulling something out and just having to go with it and hoping that it will, it will work. You're not getting that assuredness that odds aren't on your side and you're not going to have that deep seated knowledge that's required that really positions you and adds that strategic value to the process to know that you're solving this as best as you can from day one. Mm. But what would you, what would be your advice for someone who, let's say someone who is still kind of stuck in this few hundred dollar logo work? Mm-hmm. How do you actually then rebrand yourself <laughs> or reposition yourself as a brand identity designer to start working on basically logos that have higher added value or just projects that are more expensive? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you use your portfolio, you use the clients that you've worked with and show your success cases and offer that as value to them. They see that you have invested years upon years into this and they are paying for that expertise and that they're also going to be able to sit among other really, really successful companies and brands right from the beginning. So it gives them a great position to be speaking from and it's actually valuable to their investors and to to other people that want to work with them. They see them as somebody who cares about design and they see them as somebody who takes themselves very seriously and they can trust the potential business relationships they have with them because they both have uh, a common appreciation and respect for their companies. So then speaking about the portfolios, like (laughs) what is the right way to, I mean, what should you then include in this portfolio to build this trust? I guess, only having logos is not really helpful because it doesn't really tell the whole story or 
am I wrong? Like, so <laughs> basically the question is like, what is, how should the portfolio look like to build this bridge to then also try to get better clients? There's a variety of, of ways in which you can approach this. Some people believe that they really need to demonstrate process to show their value in their thinking. And I, I wouldn't argue against that, especially early on. If you want to show people that you are serious about this work and maybe you haven't had the chance to work with an established company yet, then it's good to explain your thinking because people can see that it's not just BS and you didn't just get lucky. They see that you do have critical thought going into your work and that's valuable. So I would say presenting that work and explaining it in a way that is still succinct, that's not over the top. And that does explain the strategic approach that you took to solve the problem is valuable. If you are more established and you have worked with brands that people can be familiar with, then it's just about showing those brands, showing it well and explaining your work extremely succinctly, showing the robustness of the offering that, that you delivered to them, helping them to understand how they went from where they were to where you brought them to. Uh, I also find that showing way too much work can be quite overwhelming for people. Mm. So curating your work down to a digestible amount of things that have impact and that show an array of skills is really, really valuable. So if you're fortunate enough to have a broad portfolio, and let's speak specifically to identity design, that you have big companies in a variety of major industries like food and beverage, retail, tech, um, etc., And then you also have a variety of design approaches like symbols, uh, logotypes alone, symbol and wordmark, wordmark with an element that you should curate those down into the strongest ones within each industry and within each approach. Because whatever work you put out there, it's likely that you're going to be approached to do more similar work. So put the work out that is your best that you want to do more of in a curated manner that clearly demonstrates your, um, your professionalism and your expertise and allow the right people to come to you. I actually want to quickly jump back to the perspective of, um, let's call it somebody creating the business or mm -hmm. designer who is a founder. Yes. Um, this is what I forgot to ask you. Like, when is the right time to start thinking about the brand? Because what I see is designers, they get excited, excited about brands. So they first start creating the brand. Even So basically, I'm talking about now creating a new venture or a startup or something like that. Yes. Designers obviously first jump into that. I mean, not all of them, but many jump into creating a brand. Whereas some design teams, uh, sorry, founding teams that are more business heavy or development heavy. They just disregard it for a long period of time. So yep. what is the right balance in your mind? When should a startup or a new product start designing the brand? <laughs> this is a... Uh... An impossible question to answer. I'll give you a couple <laughs> approaches, but there is no right or wrong answer here. Okay. Yeah. Because your resources are always limited in some way money, ability, time, and I can't account for all of those things. Um, and there's inevitabilities within every company that are all different. You know, some people stick to the same product from day one. Some people change product offerings 10 times before they go out into the public. So these things are, are things that we just can't account for. But what I would say is it's more important that you establish a good business before you worry about investing heavily into the brand. Make sure that you have a sound idea and you've got something that can work and that you have the logistics of it determined before you go invest 
heavily into how you should identify and communicate that to the world. Because any good logo that's out there in the world is only good because you love the company. You respect the brand, you respect what they do, and then you have associated those positive mm. feelings with that logo. So it's much more important that you have a good business that really is valuable before you, you know, stress heavily about a good logo. And if you're counting on your logo to carry your business, your business will fail. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Mackie, I want to be mindful of your time. So here's the final question okay. that's, that's sometimes tricky, but sometimes very fruitful. <laughs> so is there any um, unpopular belief that you hold about graphic design or brand design or just design in general? So is there anything that you believe but you see a lot of people in the industry uh, have a different belief? Yes. There is. And that is something that I battle with. I, even myself, I would say I have two sides to this belief and I fight them often. And I'm sure it comes from my background. And that is to say that design is completely removed of, of art. Um, because I find myself too deeply, um, entrenched caring about the work that I create to believe that it's only problem solving. I can't tell you that that's right or that that's wrong. And I would tell you that a lot of people would tell you that I'm wrong in even bringing that up, that design is purely aesthetics to solve problems. But uh, I think that at least within identity design, um, within what I do, that maybe there is a little bit of art in there and a little bit of magic that comes through that or a little bit of, of uh, individual touch that makes it go from good to, to great to something I can really be proud of. So it is, it is not the norm. It is easily argued against. You could prove that wrong um, all day, but it's something that I can't escape. And it's something that I just continue to see to have at least some nugget of truth within my practice. Interesting. So this almost goes against what we said in the beginning, like design is not art. I mean, not completely, but like, if I understand you correctly, you're trying to find the balance between the two. I am. And that's why I said, I can tell you the right answer. I know the right answer, but I do have a, you asked, what's my, what's a belief that I have? This is something that I, that I, I struggle with consistently that comes up from the inside. And maybe it's just my art background, but I do believe that caring like that or wanting it to be more than just a technical solution is valuable. It's what makes us human. It's what makes it not just a computer generated solution to these problems. Uh, that little bit of, of art, that uncalculatable bit of taste. Um, it, it has some value, I believe. Yeah. And I, okay. I promise this is the last question, but it's kind of connected. Like um, since we're talking about art, where do you get inspiration for your work? Where do you find these artistic elements? Everywhere. It's, it's living. And that's part of maybe why I think of this is not just problem solving because I embody these assignments and then I'm looking at everything that I do as a potential solution. I'm, when I'm, you know, the simplest things like, of course, yeah, I visit an art museum or those kind of already expected yeah. ways to look for inspiration. I'm doing that. But at the same time, it's, I'm going surfing, I'm going skateboarding. Like I'm, you know, I look at a, a 
piece of paper on a wall hung at a funny angle and sometimes that will set off the right idea or i'll just see two things in nature that are proportionate in a certain manner like oh there's this to that that's a really nice proportion in the way in which they're set what if i moved these objects and that then became like that inspires me sometimes interesting i'm looking at a piece of paper on the floor right now and i can see forms that are there there's something um, and <laughs> cool <laughs> yeah there's there's inspiration to be found everywhere. It's just that I need to know what what problem I'm trying to solve for and then the rest of life is what influences that. Yeah, I guess once you have this main challenge or problem in your mind, you can see the inspiration for it. Like you said, like everywhere, if you really let it get through the filter. Exactly. And yeah. it's not just that you can plug it in and go, oh, well, now if I look at this book and this you know, artist collection and do this one exercise then i will get to the answer just i haven't found that it works like that for me at least yeah, yeah. well really thanks a lot Mackie, for taking the time um just as a last last question is just where can listeners find more about you or your work or is there anything you want to share with listeners um i'm pretty easy to find on the internet uh, at saturday on twitter at saturday on instagram my website is MackieSaturday.com. So any of those places are simple and, and easy enough. And um, no, I think you've done a really nice job with this podcast. If anything, I want to leave listeners with it's that I recommend they spend more time listening to people like you and don't just get sucked into standard design podcasts because this kind of stuff, if I had this information early on, could have really been foundational in changing the way in which I approached uh, my practice. So Thank you for having me and thanks for putting this content into the world. Cool. This is the end of the episode. If you like the show or this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or any other podcast app. This really helps me a lot with uh, getting other great guests and also helps other listeners find the show on this crowded podcast market. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. If you want to learn more about business, um, you can visit my website, beyondusers.com, and there you can take a five-day email course, which I put together. It's called Mini MBA for Designers. And in these emails, I present five business concepts that are relevant for designers and that I've also used in my design process. So that's available on beyondusers.com.